Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Today, with nonfiction publishing thriving, the Read Smart podcast aims to explore quality nonfiction and the issues underpinning it, as well as providing a behind-the-scenes insight on this year's prize journey as we announce the 2021 longlist, shortlist and winner towards the second half of the year. For the past 22 years, the Bailey Gifford Prize has rewarded the very best in non-fiction writing across the fields of current affairs, history, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, autobiography, and the arts. In today's episode, we're going to explore health in 2021 and what could be more interesting and vital. Books about health in the NHS have proved popular in the last few years, but there is certainly a growing appetite for information and analysis around public health and the social care system in light of the events of the last year and we're still living with the COVID-19 pandemic, of course. Here to talk about this today is author and speaker Madeline Bunting, who is a former Bailey Gifford Prize long-listed author for her book, Labours of Love. Madeline travelled around the country for five years, collecting and collating stories from charity workers, doctors, social workers, and many people working in the health and social system to explore their experiences and highlight Britain's crisis in care. Also joining us today is doctor and television presenter, Alexander Van Tulliken, otherwise known as Dr. Zand. Dr. Zand is best known for presenting health shows such as Operation Ouch on CBBC and Channel 4's How to Lose Weight Well. He was also, of course, a judge on the Bailey Gifford Prize in 2019. Last year, Zand featured alongside his brother Chris on the BBC documentary Surviving the Virus, My Brother and Me, which followed the pair as they worked through the professional and personal implications of the COVID-19 pandemic. Madeline, Zand, thank you so much for joining us, albeit yet again remotely. Um, let's start by just talking about your reflections on on the pandemic, because you've you've you know each one of us has very specific experiences um, of what's happened over the last year. Uh, Madeline, let's start with you. Wow, that's a, a very big question, Razia. <laughs> I'm very glad you didn't up. start with me. <laughs> Yeah, it gives you a bit of time to work out an answer. (laughs) I suppose we could narrow it by just looking at how it's impacted you personally and and your family. I think just to sort of say why it's such a big question is I think when you're immersed in something of this scale, it's very, very hard to sort of get a sense of perspective. On a personal level, I think in many ways my working life hasn't changed and I am um, a very sort of, uh, you know, I, I, I... I, to be honest, I'm, I manage fine um, at home. I, this is where I work anyway. And my um, sort of rather solitary life is not too much of a sacrifice. What I think has been incredibly challenging and continues to be is the way in which I'm cut off from people who need me um, or could need me. So I can't support people that I know, you know, friends and relatives who are going through very, very, very difficult times. So it's the unevenness of the pandemic that I find is an enormous weight. My mother is in a care home and I phone her every day and every day it's a struggle to help her make sense of what on earth is going on and why I'm not visiting her and why she can't do things. For about seven weeks, she was isolated in her own room that is my mother's idea of torture. So 
I feel like I'm wading through treacle most of the time. There's this strange sort of slowing down sense of inertia and low-level anxiety about the terrible mental health toll um, that a whole raft of relatives and, of course, my kids, you know, their lives have been absolutely derailed. Um, and thankfully, they're, they're managing with great bravery and ingenuity. But boy, the anxiety of the mother. Um, so there we go. Yeah, I completely relate to that. My, my kids are, are, are very much the same, 23 and 19. And, and, and really, wading through treacle is a, is a very good um, uh, image to, to, to sit with. Um, Zand, you and your brother made this uh, documentary um, about uh, COVID-19. Outside of that, I mean, I'm presuming that you, you're, so much of what was in that documentary was informed by your experience. But I, I just wonder now, when you look at how we're still living with it, and it still poses so many challenges, what, what, what that feels like to you personally as a, as a doctor, but also as a public figure? I, I think... Um... What Madeline said, the sort of very, very uneven distribution of it is what strikes me because the stories that we tell about the pandemic in public kind of shape our perception of it. And so there is increasingly at the moment a sort of a narrative arc that is out of nowhere a virus arises, affects everyone equally, and then science comes along and solves the problem. And that narrative is really challenged every day by the real events on the ground, where, of course, not only has it been an enormous human tragedy, but the problem has arisen through the actions of people, not to blame particular people in particular place, but in general, our unwillingness to engage with um, environmental destruction and the forces that drive these um, spillover events, these um, viruses jumping across species. The inequality of distribution of effect, of course, within the UK and, and internationally is enormous. And so I guess I I feel like we're telling this story that we're doing a brilliant job rescuing ourselves. And instead, I think we got unbelievably lucky with the kind of virus that we got that we can make a vaccine and that it isn't um, too severely affecting young children. And we don't seem to be really profoundly engaged with undoing the real causes of this. Instead, there's finger pointing and blame and countries competing for vaccines and things like this. So I think the stories we tell about it are enormously important. But I, I guess I do feel somewhat pessimistic about the long term. Um, this will not be the only event like this that we see in our lifetimes. Uh, I don't think anyone. Yeah, but that 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 is so. Yeah, I mean, Zan, that that final point is so interesting. I was, I was in the last kind of two or three days, just kind of cursorily going through the sorts of programs that the BBC has made um, about uh, about the the, uh, the pandemic, and and of course we've done an awful lot in the last year. But back in 2018. The World Service, to mark the 100th anniversary of that last pandemic, the influenza pandemic 100 years ago um, in 1918, they, they did a program called The Coming Pandemic, and they had all sorts of experts in it. And the tagline for this program said, and doctors now say the next pandemic will be upon us in a matter of decades. Yes. 
which I thought was really interesting. And 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 there, you know, there, there were there was a whole swathe of books that were published round about the hundredth anniversary of of the the flu pandemic. And and there was one um, that that was called the Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. And and at the time, there was this review of it, which said. We have come a long way since 1918, but we must always stay vigilant and continue to improve pandemic flu preparedness. And and I and I remember thinking when I read that, wow, you know, what is it about our lack of preparedness that completely and utterly revealed all the things that you're talking about, the inequities, the the way in which it's been uneven in how it's affected people as well. Madeline, I I wonder if we can start by talking about your your book because when we first started feeling the effects of, of COVID-19 in this country, that the places where it was hitting the hardest was care homes. And, and it felt as though that had taken everyone in policymaking and government by surprise. What did you make of, of how, how the pandemic was, was being affected by people inside care homes? Well, uh, my book tackles a very broad waterfront about the role and place of care in our culture and society and how we have systematically undervalued, under-recognised, marginalised it. Um, and, you know, there's a big historical argument uh, in which I'm saying that this has been the case for centuries, a kind of structural bias against care. And I look at a number of different contexts of which the care of the elderly was one. Uh, now, the problem about care of the elderly, I think, is it compounds two prejudices in our society. One, that care should be either free, i.e. it's in, it should be done by the family, within the family, or it should be uh, cheap uh, because it's women's work. Um, and that prejudice of course, has led to all sorts of problems in, in anything associated with care. But what it happens when it comes to the care of the elderly is it combines in a toxic combination with I, what I think has been a kind of traditional distaste for old age, particularly in Western cultures. So the sociologist of ageing, Chris Phillipsons, picks out this as a particular characteristic of Anglo-Saxon societies, that they have very, very little respect for the, for the sort of final stages of all of our lives, um, as opposed to uh, many other cultures around the world. So if you look back at the policy of care for the elderly in the UK over the last you know, 150 years, it's a catalogue of horror. It truly is a catalogue of horror. And we've now added another chapter last April 2020. In a kind of tighter time frame, people say, well, for the last 20 years, we've been producing commissions about how to uh, improve the provision of care. And there have been repeated kind of lamentations and outrage and horror about the state of, of, of social care for the elderly. And yet it's, a, it's, it's a, as if the politicians simply can't crack this one. They can't find the policy which builds the cross-party support to get the resources into the system that, that it has so badly needed as the population ages. You know, we've got more people getting older and we've got less, less provision. And we pay the people who work in that sector appallingly and we treat them appallingly with terms and conditions which are simply horrific. 15-minute visits to people living in their homes, for example, um, zero-hour contracts, uh, etc. 
So, so all of that was a problem this time last year in February 2020. What, what uh, then happened, of course, was that COVID ripped into all the shortcomings, exposing them brutally. What I cannot answer, and I don't know yet if anybody can, which is why it was that there was a failure at the, at the kind of top levels of leadership, whereby the NHS was, uh, was discharging elderly patients who had not been tested for COVID in March 2020, back into the care homes. And of course, many of them took COVID. And the results were that thousands and thousands of elderly people died. And yet the politicians, Boris Johnson was saying, you know, people will be fine in the care homes. So was it a failure of the science? Was it a failure of the politicians? Was it simply that the NHS was under such pressure that they did something that they knew was dangerous? Who knows? You know, we've got to wait for that inquiry. Uh, but God, was it a tragic moment in April 2020. I, I'm, just to give you a, a brief anecdote, I'd gone hunting for flour because you couldn't get any bread flour in, in East London for love nor money. Uh, and there was a tip off in our street WhatsApp that there was a bakery uh, you know, in, in Newham that was selling it. So we all piled off on our bicycles to Newham, which is about half an hour away from where I live. <laughs> and in the queue, I was behind somebody who said she worked in adult social care. And she told me that in Newham, she said they're all dying. And even now, there's a sort of shiver of horror goes down my spine. And I just stood there in the street with the sun shining in that beautiful spring we had. And I was just, my jaw dropped. I said, why? And she said, we don't know if it's poor care or COVID or both. And about a few days later, it broke as a national story. Wow. Of a huge crisis going on. Just really extraordinary. Zan, when, when you look back at that, uh, you know, those weeks after March when we went into the first lockdown and, and, and the impact on, on social care and care homes in particular, d- what kind of failure? How do you characterise that that failure? Given, given that social care has always been at the heart of mm. of a, an, an issue in government that needed to be tackled, but seemed always to be put on the back burner. I, I just I couldn't agree with Madeline more. And I, I in fact, the the thing before we before we met here, obviously, I was having a look at some of Madeline's work, and you have an amazing quote. Uh, forgive me if I get the quote wrong. But you said uh, the patriarchy made sure that care was free and capitalism made sure that it was very, very cheap and that people were underpaid. And I feel like you captured in the care home, you see the whole picture of COVID. You see the sloppiness of the response. You see the lack of rigor. You see the extreme vulnerability. And the thing that, that struck me, I was filming in a care home. Very, very difficult to get into a care home to film because of the risks to the residents. But we did manage to do it for a dispatches for Channel 4. And I went and worked. The only way to do it was if I could be a valuable, useful person. I couldn't just hang around with a camera and and, um, and sort of present what was going on. So I went and worked for a day in a, in a care home. I, I, I should emphasize not being very useful, but trying to pitch in where I could and serve tea and things. And what struck me was the... Um, there was one lady who we said, can we film in some of the empty rooms? This is a care home in Peterborough that had lost of 18 resident, residents in two weeks. It had lost seven people. And I think that we often imagine that, that maybe that's normal in a care home. You know, everyone dies eventually. Maybe the death toll is always that high. And they said they maybe lost one or two people a year normally. 
and we were being shown around by a nurse who'd come from the Philippines originally. And we said, could we film in one of the empty rooms to get, a, you know, we wanted to show the home without endangering anybody. So an empty room had obviously been vacated by somebody who died of COVID. And she said, you can, but I can't go in there at the moment. It's, it's too emotional for me. And I, I thought, and she, she said that was the first patient I ever admitted five years ago. And he was my patient. He had no family. He was being paid for by the council and um, that he uh, was being entirely sort of looked after and cared for. She, she had become his family. And I thought, gosh, if I, if I moved to the Philippines and was an underpaid healthcare worker there, I, I hope that I would care for people the same, but she had a huge emotional commitment um, to this. So I was really, and, and she had not been able to go to the funeral. They hadn't stopped work. They hadn't quit for a single second. They'd done everything they could to keep people safe, including moving into the care home and staying there. And yet it had demolished their population and they were living in terror. It was, it was really the, the starkest thing of all the things I, I sort of saw through filming and going in hospital. Um, that was the starkest thing I saw. Hmm. Let's talk about the the plethora of information and stories and and books and literature that's come out of um, of of this particular period in a really short space of time. We are all having to learn about. Uh, I suppose health literacy, science literacy, has become a a, a thing that demands of of the population and engagement. Uh, Madeline, when you when you wrote your book, I mean, I wonder what kind of response you you had to to that book because, you know, I, I, it made me think. Reading your book made me also think about Atul Gawande's being mortal, which which is obviously the context is the United States and a health system that is very very different. But I I wonder what kind of response you you got because I'm I'm interested in how people engage with these issues that are now obviously very very. Uh, real for so many millions of people but but at the time when you were writing it you know that we didn't have a pandemic so so you're asking Razio as I was interviewing and doing my research what were people's responses yeah yeah yeah, yeah you know yeah. The, the, were people were people surprised yeah. that you were yeah. interested in this yeah. subject so so this the 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 um the short answer is is yes um uh frequently when I was interviewing social care workers they would start by saying, I've got nothing to say. Um, and I'd say, well, you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure you've got a little bit. Let's just see how we go. And then at the end of an hour of intense conversation in which they'd been amazingly fluent and insightful, they'd say, I had no idea I had so much to say about my job. Um, and I saw that I think it began to happen several times. There was one other time when I interviewed um, two friends of mine you know, very, very educated, both had several degrees, but um, they had both worked as social care workers in their 20s in between various other um, studying activities and so forth. And at the end of both those interviews, which were, you know, totally different people, different parts of the country, etc. Both of them said, you know, it's really funny, no one has ever asked me about that chapter of my life. Nobody has ever been interested in what the experience was. And yet, that experience was so powerful and important for me. And I began to reflect on all these people who were basically describing something that felt very invisible to them. They hadn't found a language to talk about it, or an audience that were interested. And, um, and I think that's 
part of this cultural distortion, which, as Dr. Zand pointed out very helpfully, that, you know, it is built into the way our social system and our economic system have been structured, that care does not count, that nobody wants to know about care. It's invisible. It's a, it's a, it's a form of invisible uh, activity. And actually, it takes up an enormous amount of a lot of people's time. But nobody wants to know about it. They're not interested. So when people said to me when the book came out, they said, you know, what's your kind of what's your main purpose? I said, if I can just get people to be curious as to what care is, that would be a great starting point. Because I think this is actually something that consumes lots and lots of time. It probably lasts longer than your working life. Many people in their 70s and 80s are still spending lots of time caring for another person. And if we could just start to think about this as a really important and interesting human activity. So I'm very, very interested about the creativity of care. But you have to think constantly and imagine yourself into somebody else's life experience to imagine what is most conducive to their flourishing and well-being. So whether that's, you know, a nurse on a busy ward or a mother or father looking after the child, you know, this kind of being focused on another human being and, and what they need. Uh, and uh, the book is trying to describe the way that care... I describe it as an empire. There are so many different relationships and forms of care uh, and different ways to care. Uh, so, you know, it's a huge subject. Let, let's, let's, go to, let, let's go to you, um, uh, Zan, because it, it, it does... I'm interested in in people's engagement with the subject matter of not just care, but, you know, we saw such a huge engagement with people wanting to acknowledge how the National Health Service was was uh, dealing with the pandemic and our gratitude to the people who were committed in, in care homes and so on. I, I wonder if you were if you were surprised by that. I guess not. I mean, I got ill, and I if I start to think now, as in I got ill with COVID, and when I think of going into A&E and the people that looked after me, I, I get a lump in my throat instantly. I, I, I feel so grateful to them, and anyone that has sort of engaged with the NHS, I mean, I know some people don't, don't have a good experience, but I think people are able to see that the vast majority of healthcare workers, not just doctors and nurses, but most people who go into those jobs genuinely want to help people. I mean, it sounds a bit kitsch in the kind of thing that you might just say at a medical school interview, but you'd be you'd be bonkers to go into a, a job as a nurse without without deriving some meaning from from the act of care. Um, and, and the same in any any healthcare profession. So um I, th I mean, maybe if you're a, a pathologist, it might be a little bit removed if you're any, you know, I suppose, and people people make fun of the anaesthetists who just, just put everyone to sleep. But in general, I think you can sense a sincere warmth that, that, for, for, from care workers. And I, I guess I, I wish I understood why there is such a gap between the sincere, almost spontaneous applause of, you know, those first few rounds of applause for the NHS in, in the street and, and people genuinely want to leave their houses and bang pots and pans and make a noise and express their gratitude and then our willingness to vote for a government 
that has relentlessly refused to pay healthcare workers adequately and fund the system well. And I, I, I don't, I almost feel it feels sometimes like we are a nation of people who believe we don't deserve any better and we all somehow know our place. And we seem to be okay with 100,000 dead people. That seems to be okay. And um, perhaps that is some part of our culture that is hard to reckon with, that we are not um, some, somehow, you know, it's sort of the, the poor will suffer what they must, but 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 that seems to be all right, that certain deaths are allowed and appropriate and expected. And it's not how I feel, but it somehow feels like overall we've accepted it and we've accepted the fact that, you know, doctors are paid reasonably well. So I appreciate I'm not I'm not speaking from from within the group, but, you know, that nurses and healthcare assistants and, you know, people in hospital who are less well paid than doctors and certainly people in care homes and in the care system in general uh, should not be paid well, despite, as Madeline says, this unbelievable um, vocational commitment to, to to care for someone properly is to engage with their life as, as deeply as you possibly could and yet we we devalue it totally and I, I i wish i understood it but i don't madeline i wonder i wonder how that that what what zand is saying resonates with you i mean it, it's pretty shocking to hear uh, a doctor reflecting on the idea that somehow more than 100,000 deaths are are something that we we feel okay with and it does feel it does feel that that somehow this is a moment of reckoning for this country but it also feels like there's a disconnect between the statistics and our responses to the the people behind them well you know as as zand said that you know i kind of shivered and something came back to my mind which was in 2008 when we had the financial crash i remember sitting in the guardian uh, news conference uh, which was our sort of editorial meeting and everybody was saying why aren't there people on the streets getting angry about this you know horrific kind of economic collapse which is going to cause so much suffering and I think what I would say is that our reactions to catastrophes are slow as a nation, you know, and and other nations, that there will be a response to this. Um, and we're not even over and it's more, going to be more than 100,000 deaths. And I think at the moment uh, we're numb, actually. I think there's a degree of shock Um and and a degree of denial, you know, there's, it, because the fact that Britain is doing so much worse in terms of accumulating more deaths than most of you, other European countries, you know, politicians have said, oh, well, you know, wait till the end, you know, we, we haven't got out of this yet. And, you know, who knows what? I mean, they're banking on the vaccine, uh, kind of bringing those death rates down very, very speedily, very soon. But I think there will come a moment, actually, Zand, when people do turn around and say, what the hell happened there? And I think that is going to be a profound moment of national reckoning and that the consequences will not be what we expect because in the way that they linked Brexit to the 2008 crash, the way people deal with anger is not necessarily, in my view, not necessarily logical. And that anger with an establishment that effectively was not funding the NHS to the level that it required, and we knew that 
for a decade before the, the, the pandemic, that, that, that investment right across the NHS, things had been pared to the bone. The beds in intensive care units were way below the levels that they were in Germany and other parts of Europe. So we went into the pandemic without the equipment, without the quantities of staff. Zand rightly pointed to pay, but actually, I think the biggest problem was we didn't enough have enough skilled staff. Yes. And so when they opened the night the Nightingale Hospitals, that was a ludicrous bit of PR nonsense. It was a charade. They didn't have the nurses and doctors to mat to staff them. So they were meaningless. Uh, so that's what you know makes me so angry. And I think at some point that yeah. It's funny you mentioned that, and I think but that was ten years ago, wasn't it? What do you, it, it seems. And and now you say it, I'm like, oh yeah, that was weird. We never used that. <laughs> that was weird. It seems like another lifetime. It, it seems so yeah. connect to it. Yeah. Perhaps, as you say, it will all then coalesce into some something that people can have a clear emotional response to. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just found that so so interesting. Yeah. I want to talk about um, this idea of, um, of of not being able to confront uh, what is happening uh, while it's happening. You know, obviously the the immediacy of, of of having to deal with sick people is happening every single second of every day. But but given that there has been so much information, so much analysis, and we have had to become science literate very very quickly, I I, I wonder, Zand, if we can just get you to reflect on on. On, on how important that has <laughs> yeah. been versus also the, the fact that there is so much misinformation out there, which, which is also worrying, because if you don't have the science literacy to begin with, it's very difficult to then identify the misinformation. That's such a good question. Okay. So uh, it's funny because in a way, I think that the sort, of the, the sort of critical faculties that are less scientific are sometimes very valuable to know when you're being sold a story you know that's why i think the you know books like madeline's and and the kind of things that have been written around it are so valuable because they allow you to see a, a thing in detail but but okay yes we have been confronted with a a barrage of of numbers um i can give you a couple of examples i suppose of of, of the difficulty. The first one that strikes me is that the, the numbers we're all aware of at the moment are the percentage effectiveness of the vaccine. So Pfizer is, you know, 1995 effective uh, percent effective, and the Oxford one is maybe 50 to 70 percent effective. Are the kind of numbers that are, that are, uh, are widely known. And I don't think that many people, even if you took healthcare professionals, could tell you what it means for a vaccine to be 90% effective. So I, I think, I won't ask you, but 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 tell me if this rings, rings true. I think a lot of people feel that 90% effective is sort of like wearing a suit of armour that covers 90% of your body, that you are pretty much protected from the virus, and that 70% effective is like wearing a suit of armour with, with bigger holes in it. Um, in fact, there are two things to say about that. One is those comparisons between the viruses of vaccines are almost meaningless because the trials were conducted differently in quite healthy populations. Um, they were done rapidly for um, so that we could get the viruses through. So the trials are not bad, but all it means is that in, a, in the two groups of the trial, the group that got the vaccine, the group that didn't, 70% fewer people got uh 
COVID in, say, the Oxford vaccine group than did in the group that got the placebo vaccine. Now, already, I think that I'm becoming confusing, but that tells you nothing about your risk of getting COVID. So in some parts of these trials, very few people got COVID on either side of the trial. So your absolute risk of COVID isn't 70% or 30% or 5% or 90% or any of these things. It's it's um, your absolute risk of COVID is determined by your behavior and your actions and your vulnerability and all sorts of other things. And so that number that we've attached so much importance to is meaningless in terms of interpreting for an individual how well the drug they've been given will work. And it's also quite meaningless in terms of how well it's likely to work in the population, unless you are a vaccine scientist. Well, we could talk about this for a lot longer, but we're going to have to draw it to a close. Um, Zand, thank you very much. Alexander Alexander Van Tulliken and Madeleine Buntin, thank you both um, very much for joining us. Uh, that's all we have time for on this episode. Uh, do join us next time as we discuss writing about royals. You know you want to tune in. Also, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at BG Prize for all the latest on future episodes and news regarding this prize. You can also sign up for our newsletter through the website for updates straight to your inbox. The Bailey Gifford Prize rewards excellence in nonfiction writing and brings the best in intelligent reflection on the world. This year, the 2021 Prize Longlist will be announced in September, followed by the shortlist in October. The winner of the prize this year will then be announced in November. Thanks again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their support for this podcast. Till the next time. Bye-bye. 